Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guests are Neil Allen and Annie Lamott. And this is a conversation I've been looking forward to. Let me tell you a little bit to begin about Neil Allen. He's a writer, spiritual coach, and speaker whose chief interest is removing obstacles of the ego. He's the author of Shapes of Truth, Discover God Inside You, and a new book, which is what we're going to be talking about today. It's called Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic. The foreword to Better Days is written by Annie Lamott, who describes Neil as her personal husband, which for every time I hear that or think of it, I get a chuckle. And I don't quite know why I'm chuckling, but I chuckle nonetheless. Annie, as you probably know, is a New York Times bestselling author of 19 books. I learned that next year, Annie will be turning 70 and will be releasing her 20th book. Her books include seven novels and many books that are beloved by so many of us, including Bird by Bird, Help Thanks Wow, Traveling Mercies, and more. Neil and Annie, thank you for coming here and being part of Sounds True's podcast, Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Yeah, <clears throat> great to be here. Right here at the beginning. I'd love it. You ready for this? If you could introduce each other a little mm. bit more as humans and beloveds for each other. How would you introduce each other in that context to our audience? Share a little bit about how you got together, that kind of thing. I can go. Um, two things come to mind right away. One is uh, what you see in Annie in the books is actually what life is like with Annie. Annie provides most days with a kind of running Saturday Night Live sketch comedy routine that changes every day and lightens things up. Mm -hmm. So we're both, uh, we're, neither of us is a big proponent of uh, depth. We both think that when you get to visit with God, as often as not, it's lighthearted and simple and funny. So that's one thing. The second thing is when we first met, um, 
we we met for coffee and then we just hung out with each other every day and have hung out with each other every day since then, unless one of us was on the road and the other wasn't. Um, and it just has been a running conversation all the time. Early in the running conversation, and neither of us ever talked about this until much later, um, we'd be watching TV at in the evening and usually Scandinavian detective shows. And one of us would hit the remote and hit pause and blurt out something we were ashamed of and then hit start again. And then the show would go on and then the other one would hit pause and blurt out something they were ashamed of. And we kind of, within a week or two, we ran through all of the most shameful things in our minds, in our heads, in our lives, however you want to look at it. And it just cleared away secrets. And it was, uh, it was unintentional, but it was because Annie's willing to be as vulnerable as any human being on earth and knows that that's a path to relationship and a path to uh, the divine. Yeah, we really just got rid of it um, right away so that I just didn't want to have, I didn't want to get busted. I didn't want to have secrets. I just wanted to, we really kept it in the soda shop stage for uh, a couple weeks on one hand. And on the other, we just, for the first date on, we're just sort of um, kind of noodling around. I would disagree that we don't do depth because we really do do depth, but we're also quite playful and we're big proponents of of a kind of radical silliness maybe people would call it a stupidity but we have a lot of running routines and um we met on match on this form of match that's for old people seven and a half years ago called our time and um we just looked at each other. We just kind of grokked each other and we were off and running conversationally in about 20 minutes. And we just, I think both understood that that was the most important thing that you felt like you could spend the rest of your lives together talking. And we talked about very serious soul stuff and spirit stuff. And we, it also turned out that he knew almost as much about the John Benet Ramsey murder as I did. And so, and then we had both had decided we wanted um, the Grateful Dead song Ripple to play at our memorial service. This is on the first date. On the second date, he made me cry. But on the first date, um, and so that we had Ripple as our processional at when we got married five years ago. In the in the foreword to Better Days, Annie, you write about how on one of your early dates, Neil wanted to share with you the work that he has done and this interest that he has in taming your inner critic. And your reaction was... You wrote, you wrote that it was to run away. Well, it was kind of like really, like I, I mean, I've done a lot of work on this, but it's only oh, it's only right. because he has such beautiful hands, and you yeah, know, yeah. He, we, we'll talk about this topic. But I thought that you know, there's something about yeah. that that struck me. I think on the first date, we talked about his diamond heart work and the shapes of truth work. And I had come in a really dis sort of disturbed state because of a personal thing that was going on at my house, and I brought it up. He said, what, how are you? Like, really? And I brought it up and we did the diamond heart um, essential forms, you know, over bagels and coffee. And, uh, and I couldn't believe it because, it, and, and that was what the first book turned out to be about. And then on the second date, 
he started um, helping me to recognize the inner critic, this voice that has kept me kind of scared and, and unsure of myself for almost 70 years now. But at the time, about 60, what was it, 62 Something like that. And um, I mean, thank God we were together for barely for the 2016 election. But we did the um, inner critic work on our second date and, and the lights went on. And I all of a sudden understood and I'll let him talk more about what it is. But I, I went like this. You know, I had one of those aha moments where you feel like you're standing next to a Buddhist gong because everything fell into place. That it, this voice criticizing or belittling me wasn't me. It was something I'd taken on as a very young child, uh, encouraged by my family and the culture that helped me st A, stay alive and B, become socialized and a grown up. So. Yeah. You know, Neil, your work with Taming the Inner Critic, to, for me, was surprisingly fresh and effective. Mm. I was like, what? Yeah. Really? Because, I mean, I've been exposed to this in a lot of different yeah. forms. So I was a little bit yeah. like, you know, is there anything here that's going to be new? I had no idea when I cracked open the book. And it was. It, and it's it's the effectiveness, I think. The stunning simplicity and effectiveness is what, uh, you know, and I really want you to introduce how you help people work with the inner critic and really give it to us right here so that all of our listeners can get this gift. Most people um, who I meet uh, in everyday life and in spiritual communities and everywhere have been brought up to kind of resent their inner critic and to believe in some way or another it's part of them. And all I do, it turns out, is a very simple thing, which is I persuade people that it's not just a part of the, it isn't a part of them, that it's actually a facsimile of a person who actually sits just outside of their true self, and that it's a parasite. And then once it's separated distinctly from the person and the person buys into that, they get to investigate its qualities and it turns out it's it's really rather stupid and really rather a bully and idiotic and repetitive and has no business guiding an adult life. It wore it 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 served a beautiful purpose when we were six years old and getting socialized in a complex civilization. And at six years old, you need uh, an absent parent to have a voice in you for a while because you're making fateful decisions for the first time by yourself. Up to six, somebody's watching over you, vaguely at least. You're not allowed to cross the street on your own. And at six, you go to first grade, you're allowed to cross the street on your own. It might be five in some households, seven in another, but somewhere around there, you need to learn how to look both ways. And the voice tells you how to look, reminds you in a scolding voice, by the way, always a scolding voice to look both ways. And that's wonderful, right? And if you're in a particularly dysfunctional family, it might provide you with some reliability and some reminders, get you to school on time, get you to function in a way that you're unreliable parents or parental substitutes aren't able to do. Um, so that's good too. And that's kind of fateful too. And as you learn the ropes, um, 
it kind of helps you in confusing situations, get used to the rhythms of uh, strangers in your midst and strange adults asking you to do strange things. And it provides you with some very elementary tools to get past the confusing parts and keep your life going and mature a little bit. By the time you're 17, though, you've on your own tested all the strategies that are out there. There aren't that many for how to get along with the world. And you're much more sophisticated than your superego, than your inner critic, than this thing that continues to talk to you as if you're a six-year-old. And by the way, we'll continue to talk to you that way until you're 90 years old, because it only knows how to talk to a six-year-old. And even though you're no longer a six-year-old, you're convinced in some way that you are. Right? Most cultures have to support this. It's very helpful for everybody in a complex civilization to believe that they're small so that their only job is to contribute to the success of other people. And they they aren't allowed as a mature human being to make up their own mind about how to spend their time. And it kind of keeps you constricted as that six-year-old until you're 90 years old, telling you that you're listening to yourself and without it, you'd be predatory or homicidal if you're from a Freudian background, or you'd have, if you're Catholic, you'd have original sin. If you're from almost any faith, you would have some kind of bad seed that needed to be controlled, and you don't. But to come to the idea that you don't and that you can actually do this on your own without a nagging fake parent, absent parent around, you've got to see the nagging absent parent for what it is, apparently. At least I did. I lucked into seeing it. It objectified itself one day on a therapist in a therapist's room on my shoulder, and I started a conversation with it, and I discovered it's a moron. And I can use the word moron because it's not a real person. It's a facsimile of a person who only knows a few things and who keeps repeating them. And I am a much better decision maker than it is because it's conservative, right? And conservative decisions get you by, right? It can claim a very high success rate, but it never disappears long enough to notice that I can get to that success rate quite fine without it. And without it, I'm not anxious when I'm making my decisions. And so the main process that I talk about, I'm, I'm sorry, this takes a while to get to, and, um, but the main process I'm it's talking about- It's worth waiting for. Is, is literally, it's silly, but you literally pull the voice out of your head, right? You hold your palm in front of you. And if you wait long enough, usually about 30 seconds, a face will appear. It's weird, but a face for most people, not always, but usually a face appears. The face is usually slightly vague. The face is always suspicious or snarky, one or the other, because that's the only attitude that the superego knows. That's the attitude of a grumpy parent warning you of a danger. And so it always has that kind of expression. And then I developed over time a series of questions that almost every superego answers the same way. And the first question is, when did you take charge? And it'll answer, oh, when you were born or when you were five or six years old, right? And then you ask it, 
who put you in charge? And most of them say you did. Some of them will say a parent did, but most say you did. And those are just kind of entry questions. They get the superego used to, oh, and by the way, it answers. And it answers honestly, right? And so it, you want to give it yes or no questions mostly. The first couple aren't. But after that, it's yes or no questions. And the questions are things like, I have them in the book, but they're just a series of questions. Um, who put you in charge? You did. May I take charge now? Well, I don't think it would be a good idea. Why wouldn't it be a good idea? Because I've seen you take charge and uh, you failed. And then I point out, or have the person who's inquiring to the hand point out, um, weren't you in charge back then? And isn't that on you if I failed? And it's something that I should hold against myself. And that usually gets them quiet. But the two most important questions that we come to, and this is done as, as a kind of a quasi-gestalt. In gestalt therapy, there's this one technique where you have an empty chair and you switch into that chair and you play the role of the mother who you're antagonistic to or you have bad memories of or the father or somebody else. And then you play their part you ask it a question and get them to answer through your voice. And this works the same way. I'm talking to my superego, and, and they really do talk back. They all do. And the two important questions are, um, what are you worried will happen to me if I take charge? And we heard, you'll fail. But the, but the next question is, is, is uh, the essential one in the end. What are you worried will happen to you if I take charge? And the superego inevitably eventually comes the answer, I will disappear. And it turns out the main reason the superego has continued to take charge well past the time that it should have retired is that it has a weird, tiny, little, almost human um, survival instinct. It does not want to go out of business. It does not want to go out of existence, at which point I instruct my client to say to it and, and mean it, I will not annihilate you. And that relieves it a little bit. And then I ask it, or the client asks it, um, isn't it tiring running the show all the time? And usually the superego answers, the inner critic answers, the face and the palm answers. Uh, yeah, it is tiring. It's actually exhausting. And then I have the person ask the superego, how would you like to go into semi-retirement as my occasional ethical advisor? And it turns out superegos are like narcissists. They love flattery. And that sounds like a really good title. It's got a nice bureaucratic ring to it. And they almost all immediately accept the position of occasional ethical advisor. Right? And that's the start. So you've identified it as something that isn't deep inside you, that's an inextricable part of you like your instincts are. 
but is actually a slightly externalized character who usually sits near the surface of the cranium. Some people feel it more in the body or in the in the in the pit of the stomach, but usually it's most people it's right around here behind the eyes. And it's not subconscious, it's just slightly subvocal. So it's whispering to you and pretending to be you and pretending to be necessary. And when you pull it out and start noticing that, everything starts up. And then the rest of the journey is just various techniques that I've developed with my clients. They, they've taught me these techniques by working with them to um, continually pull it out in real time without having to hold your hand out and talk to it so that you notice it during the course of the day and go, oh, wait a minute, that's my inner critic. That's you. That's not me. I would never talk to myself. And eventually it stops crowding out your authentic voice who is compassionate to you and the world and not endangered and not exaggerating danger and doesn't live in a world of hierarchies and right, wrong, good, bad, turning everything into a moral play, but wants things to happen as they naturally will and, and wants to be accepting of them. And that voice gets stronger and stronger. And as that voice gets stronger, it amplifies itself. So it's a, it's a, it's a continual rewarding system, right? It isn't like, you know, some people look at uh, various kinds of spiritual work as, oh, I have to work and work and work and work and work and poof, I'm open, right? In this case, you open a little crack here and keep working at it. There's a little more crack. And that's nice. It's nice to get a little reward along the way. And the only job is to is to continually recognize, wait a minute, that's not me, number one. And number two, maybe I don't need that voice. Maybe I don't need to punish myself in order to get things done. Let's see if I'm just as productive, just as charitable, just as uh, helpful in the world without somebody telling me you're not productive enough, you're not charitable enough, you're not helpful enough in the world. Now, let me ask you both a question. What did it appear like in your hand? Like, Annie, I'm curious, when you did this, what did you see? What does this super ego character for you look and sound like? Well, um, it was, it happened very quickly for me. I'm not going to name names, but there was a older man in publishing who had not published me, in fact, but who was involved in my, the house at which I'm published. And he was just an awful person, just uh, kind of had a harem of women beneath him and had um, just raging, raging ego and um, and a, the value that the East Coast white male intelligentsia were the writers of most value. And, um, and his being had an effect on me my professional life because he kind of oversaw the imprint where I was. And so I saw it as him. It just came and he was like uh, mid seventies and, um, um, and just grim. And it, it's funny because, you know, I, I am um, coming up on my 20th book in April. And when I was writing it, 
the whole time you'd think that I'm I would just say oh this is a piece of cake you know I write these little stories they're all about the same length they're, they're usually the same story that things feel very dark and weird and the world is terrifying and 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 then um, something happens you know I slip on the cosmic banana peel or the phone rings and all of a sudden I, I can breathe again and I get my chops back that's the main story and and I would have I would see him just rolling his eyes like well could you try to write more like Bernard Malamud or you know or you know some you know Salman Rushdie or anybody but a white west coast woman and um and I, but I would think it was I think it was true you know, and I'd hear this voice, boy, talk about beating a dead horse again. But little by little with under Neil's tutelage, sooner and sooner, instead of three and four days later of having been discouraged this whole time, I go, what he what he just told you, I go, oh, it's you. It's not me. It's not truth. It's not the spirit. It's this voice inside of me by two very high achieving intellectual parents who taught one of whom was English, who taught us to have exquisite manners and um, and taught us to do better than anybody else. And we did. And um, and it has kept me so clenched my whole life to have to achieve on this one path instead of to bloom and to flower and to and to do less done with a lot more freedom and joy. So I'd say um, for me over and over again, for seven and a half years, I've been starting to get into the attack. It sounds true to me. Sounds true. It's a great name for a company. Don't yeah, you think? That, wow, we should let's write it down. Okay. Write yeah. it down. So we don't, can you, it. can you, can we patent it? I mean, yeah, definitely sounds true. Market. And it uh, and the vo- the critical voice sounds true because I was hearing it my whole life that I should try to write with more irony, more I should write more New York, I should write less hippie, less spiritual. The spiritual stuff and uh, annoys my left wing um, fans, and of course my left wing politics annoy the spiritual fans. So, but you know, and now instead of buying into it or, or being silenced kind of shutting down i go oh it's you thank you you go read and there's great light in the library and i'm going to just get my my day's work done and it really works like that because it becomes the habit of noticing it thanking it helping it think of another place it can be. Do you uh, bother Annie with any kind of like reassignment or higher task, or are you just placing it someplace in the other room where it can go do something outside of being close to you? Oh, no, I don't. I just, I just help it find something. I kind of distract it so that I can concentrate better. And, you know, it's like having all those years when you're doing homework and your parents are breathing down your neck and it's like, oh, wait, I don't know. Why don't you erase that? I, I'm wondering if you might want to try it from this, you know, and they're just breathing that they're hot, worried, uh, neurotic, high achieving breath down your neck. And that's how I would experience the critic. 
And so, you know, when Neil, when I, every time I've seen Neil do this with other people, at the end, when he asks them to send off the critics somewhere comfortable for them to spend a few hours, he always says, well, thank you for having kept you alive. You know, we, we did not run. None of us ran into the street and got hurt. We didn't swim out beyond our ability to stay afloat. So people thank it for having kept them alive. And inevitably they cry. Yeah. They cry with gratitude. I cry as they watch it. Right. I mean, it. It really did do a great service for me when I was six or seven. And it's very sweet to see that. And it's also painful to realize for whatever length of time it took you to get to the awakening that you've been held back. You've been made small and clenched and, and worried about whether or not you're good enough as is. I mean, the American way is... If you do this and that and buy that, marry that, lease that, and achieve this, then you're a really good value. But, you know, the inner that was the inner critic, and it was just a, the great palace lie. And so it's just a path. It's a path to freedom, like to create, to play, and to wonder, and to wander, and to get, like Neil talks a lot about in Better Days, about just getting your curiosity back. Curiosity was not a value of the inner critic because it was not productive. You know? But if you know, you read Shapes of Truth, it's a synonym for joy. It's why we're here to become, in my tradition, the Christian tradition, to become again as little children. And Neil, what about you? What how did your superego slash inner critic appear? Yeah, it was interesting. I, so I had this lovely teacher, a guy named um, Bob Birnbaum who was, um, he had studied under Fritz Perls, which may give it that gestalt feel. He had studied under Carl Rogers. So he had a sense of a non-medical approach to psychology to optimize a life instead of improve a life. And he had, had been in the Rajneesh community. I think he was the he was there known as uh, Swami Amitabh, and he had been the head of the psychology department for Rajneesh for a while. And he had this all this background that I knew nothing about. He, he was just a therapist who was in the neighborhood. And I, I asked him later whether what happened to me was guided by him or whether it had happened spontaneously, because I couldn't remember. But at any rate, and he never he wouldn't answer me. Um, so I've never known. But at some point, a, a gremlin appeared on my <clears throat> left shoulder. And I started talking with it. And that's kind of the genesis of all of this work. I chose I happened to be right then um, starting to embrace the Buddhist idea of um, disidentifying from identi identities, destroying identities and moving through identities. One by my identity as a good or a bad father, my identity as a, as a writer, my identity as an employee, my identity as a parent, my identity as this, my identity as that. Um, and I used my gremlin who looked just like the classic gremlin in the movies, who, by the way, I always thought 
that that must be an age-old mythological creature. It was actually invented when it was painted on the fuselage of a World War II fighter fighter plane, right? Mm -hmm. it, it only dates to like 1941 or 1942 or whatever. But we all know that gremlin. And and mine looked, you know, it, it's a it's a rat with wings and and really toothy and long face. And it sat here. I didn't know yet to bring it out and that the face, I could face it, but I, I would talk to it and it would talk back. And I, I went in and went through my first round of identities one a week. Some of them were tougher than others and would take two or three weeks. I spent an hour with in, in Bob's um, therapy room a week and I really looked forward to it, and I moved through my first round of identities with with my um, my gremlin, uh, and asking it, you know, why do you tell me I'm a bad parent? What's a good parent? You know, how do you know what a good parent is? Why do you think it's helpful to me to call myself a mediocre parent, or I need to be better as a parent? What if I'm a good enough parent? You know, those sorts of questions, and it turns out that's that's enough. It was enough work, at least for me. That I, um, after about six months, I had a massive reduction in anxiety because it turns out you're not actually, and Freud got this right, uh, anxiety is the fear of being punished by the superego. The anxiety isn't over the fear of the outcome of the circumstance, right? We're adults. We know some things go south and sideways and 20 to 40% of the time we're going to have predicted badly and it'll go wrong, right? And we can deal with that as adults. What we can't deal with apparently is, and you're going to get a scold from your absent parent hidden in your kind of semi-imagination back here. So anxiety is the fear of being scolded. Weird, right? But I think it's true. And I think at least for me, by by getting my gremlin to show how moronic it was and show how it lacked any good authority over the provinces that it embraced, that I started, I lost a lot of my anxiety. And uh, it was years later, it was probably 10 years later before I started to have um, private clients. They were first I was an executive coach. I'd, I had I had been in uh, I'd had a first career as a journalist, a second career as a corporate executive, and I became an executive coach. And very quickly, my executive coaching went straight to the heart of the problem, which was the superego. And I discovered things like, oh, you can bring it out in front of you and talk to it directly, like in a direct gestalt, rather than let it perch on your shoulder. Okay. I'm going to get uh, personal here uh, for a moment, which is, you know, I've had a very, very, very intense super ego figure in my life, which is why when I said I was surprised, like, is this better days, tame your inner critic, is it going to help me or not? I was like, you know, I hope so, but not, not particularly optimistic about it. And I didn't, when I tried to see it in my hand, I didn't see it, like, I don't see anything in my hand, but I could sense a figure and I could sense this figure, and it's, as I said, an intense super, it's, it's a sadist figure with whips mm -hmm. and the ability to like take a hatchet and chop my hands off and a frying pan that it can hit me over the head with. And I'm like, oh my God, there's this, you know, tre tremendous, like female sadist 
costumed yeah. figure with all kinds of torture tools. And yeah. so first of all, just a question to pause, and I don't want to make this too much about me, but people may also have experiences themselves where they don't see it on the hand, but they sense, they see us, like I see a small movie or something with this person, which is a little different. What do you think about that, that it's not like a face? Well, they can morph, and some people do see full bodies and more active things. There are people out there, a tiny percentage who see multiple people, but they're really just one. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of over dramatization of the exact same thing, which is at heart, it's it's saying the same things to you as anybody else's says to them. Mm -hmm. slightly different words, slightly different, and they can morph. A lot of them morph into this very kind, you know, fake kind of insincere kindness of, oh, I'm just helping motivate you to mm -hmm. feel better about yourself. And they, they have some cleverness, right? They're honest, but they're also sly. And, and yours sounds like it's just kind of, um, knows that it's in big trouble. And so it's going to make itself look uh, fiercer and more uh, as if it has more tools than it really does. And, and they, uh, I, I, you know, one way that they appear, for instance, that is also um, not at all like a face is uh, often when people meditate, the superego comes in and says, Oh, you're too tired. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and so there's, a good percentage of meditators who say, I just struggle with, as soon as I'm meditating, I feel tired. Well, anytime you're trying to do any kind of emotional work and you feel tired all of a sudden, it's probably your superego basically saying, oh, you feel tired because it recognizes that's a way to get out of your doing something that it thinks isn't a good idea for its survival. You know, it's worried that you're going to meditate. And with you, Tammy, it's worried that somebody as spiritual and smart as you is going to come and try to uh, encourage it to go away. And so it's going to puff itself up. Why don't you just do it with her right now? Well, I think she's already done it. Oh, and okay. so I prefer well, we, to okay, do it. It's okay, but let's, let's keep going here for a moment. Yeah. What if somebody doesn't necessarily know how to link their biography, or I don't really understand the connections between how this particular figure is appearing. It doesn't all quite make sense. The figure's there. I get that. Yeah. Well, one clue is listen carefully to the inflections mm -hmm. of the voice. And for most people, you'll hear the inflections of a parent or parental substitute from childhood, right? About 80% of my clients, and this probably goes a long way to explaining the cultural misogyny out there, about 80% of the clients, it's a nagging mother. That's the inflection. The Most of the other 20% is a nagging uh, uh, father figure, mother or mother figure, father or father figure. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference because it's incorporating both mother and father and gender neutral messages at all times, right? It just picks a particular uh, voice from your childhood. And you're going to, and that'll start you into the recognition that, oh, my mother nagged me by telling me that I was too big for my britches. And actually, I noticed that the stories that I keep telling myself are I'm too big. They're kind of like I'm too big for my britches. And so like any um, 
work that crosses over into psychological work, it will take you back to these hoary childhood keys to the kingdom moral tales. We call them traumas and triggers nowadays, but they're really just little tiny moral tales that the superego pulls up to control you and and curates, right? So we think that our memories are accurate reflections of our past when they're really just a series of little uh, fairy tales that have a beginning, middle, end, and you remember that portion of the event that has a moral at the end that can protect you in the future if you don't, you know, the you very common ones that I go to, that I hear from my clients when I um, are uh, the second or third grade story of going to the party and wearing the wrong dress and being humiliated for wearing the wrong dress, right? And so people have this, they, they'll be 70 years old and talking about the party where they, well, they do that because the superego keeps reminding them of that story, right? On that same day, presumably there were a ton of events that weren't humiliating, right? But that one was selected out. And so when you do this kind of work, it takes you back into, oh, who told me that lesson that exaggerates that danger that I won't be accepted by my tribe, by the world, because I'll wear the wrong. And I and I and I've had to worry about fashion ever since. Now, one thing that was very interesting to me, Annie, when you said I'm to have my super ego go into the other room and read a book or something, what I noticed in exploring this reading better days was that when I put my super ego someplace out of my personal space, someplace else, different, like, you know, out on the ocean on a raft or something. I'm by the water here. So not that far away, but just away, go out on the raft and, you know, float around for a bit. Uh, that's what, that there was something, uh, geographic. I don't know how else to explain it, but something about like personal space being free of this being living in it with me. That was very powerful. I wonder if you both have anything to say about that. It's very cool. I hear that a lot. It, I don't write about that experience because it's, it doesn't happen to me. Right. So I just put mine back in my head and leave it at that. And it, it still decreases, but I've heard that a lot and I'm all in favor of it. Well, with me, um, God, I heard, I have, we have a intern at my tiny, tiny failing church, uh, African-American woman of 40, and she's been waiting for a liver and she's been dying for a couple of years waiting for a liver. And I was talking to her in the hospital. It turned out to be two days before she got one and she's doing really beautifully. But I said, do you feel death nearby? Because she talks about dying. And she said, I feel something sniffing around me. And she said, but the truth of Christ inside of me just keeps fending it off. And I pictured a modem, you know, and it wasn't like Jesus with a, you know, paintball gun. It was like a modem of spiritual energy that just was kind of aware and keeping it at bay. And I have that. And, and when I heard that, I realized that's a lot of the way I experience my inner critic because I feel it sniffing around. It's been my whole life is that I didn't look right. I wasn't. I didn't quite um, qu quite didn't quite do what I might have done. I dropped I was a tennis champion until I was 16 and then I dropped out and I 
dropped that and I, you know, I could have, and I didn't. And I, and also, you know, all the bad thoughts, you know, how Gabriel Garcia Marquez says there's your public self, your private self and your secret self. Well, my inner critic can really pray, can really find a crack in my turtle shell with my secret self stuff, my bad thoughts, my judgment or my, you know, raging narcissism and all of that. But so I've just been picturing the voice that can talk to the inner critic as being what uh, my Shatoka, our intern, said that there's this kind of truth inside of us. For me, it's the truth of Christ, but it's the truth of of this of the sacred world of the divine one that we're that there's only this love energy. It surrounds us, but this voice. It's like so sneaky. It's so good at what it does is that it gets in, you know, it goes, well, wait a second. And there's a Christian saying from the deep South that the voice of the devil is sweet to hear. And the devil doesn't say, oh, you're a piece of, you know what? The devil doesn't. The devil says, I really want you to start writing. I really want you to start meditating. But right now, it's just not a good time. There's too much going on. Let's revisit it at the beginning of the year. It's that voice that keeps you from stepping into this shape that you found Finally, after these loving, lifelong loving friendships and and a partner and all the work you've done, but that for me, the inner critic is going, oh, honey, no, that's okay. Let's just let's just not go. And so instead, I can ask it to go off, maybe go into the kitchen. There's a very comfortable stool in there and just sit and maybe have a cup of tea or something because I've got work to do. I actually am on a deadline. Or I can just picture the modem just fending it off and creating a space around me that it can't get into. You know, uh, there's one thing uh, I do want to mention that um, you don't want to do with it. And you probably will want to try this a couple of times. I'm just saying in the long run, you don't want to do that. And that's um, yell it down or argue with it or debate with it or try to reason with it or try to get rid of it, right? By with your anger or with your strength or with your power or whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, because if you address it in a in a hierarchical way, as if you're in conflict with it, you're amplifying its voice because it's there all by itself, happily grinning anytime you're in conflict. I know that if I'm in conflict um, with anybody about anything, or I'm self-righteous about anything, my superego is running the show at that point. For people who are hearing this term superego, and they're a little yeah. bit like, wait a second, are we yeah. just equating the superego and the inner critic? Is that a fair yeah. equation? That's Help me understand when you use the word superego, how that relates to the ego as a whole. I'm a little confused. Okay, so the this is the standard psychological model that Freud came up with in the 1910s and 20s, and it hasn't really shifted in this sense. Uh, that there are three parts to a, an ego. Um, there's the id, which is your instincts, and there are two instincts. You know, he calls them death and sex. I think that nowadays you would call them the survival instinct and the libido instinct, right? And so they're mostly built in. They're totally built in. You arrive with them uh, at birth. They, they're in all animals in one form or another. 
And then at five or six, you develop a superego. There might be traces of it before then, but mostly socially, you're actually not doing right, wrong, good, bad, conscience kind of things when you're two, three, four, even five years old, less than people think, less than parents think. You're To the extent that you're learning good and bad, you're learning more or less like a dog does or a cat does by a weird association with reactions and not as something that you store and use as a to find cognates for things that you've seen before. So you don't really have much free will. You're really just moving with the world in kind of a nice little Buddhist dependent arising in your first few years. And then the superego comes in to socialize you. And it comes in to teach you, oh, now you've got to grow up and learn the rules. You're in a civilized society. You need to learn right, wrong, good, bad. And the superego will help you. And we've talked about how, how it appears. In the, in the classic theory, the superego is at war with the instinctual um, id. It is that you've got these predatory and homicidal interior instincts is the way Freud looked at it. Augustine would say you've got original sin, you're a bad seed, you've got these you've got these terrible instincts and you need something to offset them so you don't go on rampages and you don't hurt people and you socialize and help people instead. Um, and so you have a third thing which confusedly is also has the name ego. All three is called an ego, and so is this third three in between. Uh, that was the standard model that everybody bought into, and all different forms of psychology, whether Jungian or Freudian or this or that, kind of even cognitive, bought into it to a certain extent. Um, and it always thought that they were both necessary and they were counterposed to each other. And my I think there are a lot of people who would agree with me now that mm, I actually don't live in my homicidal survival life very much as a civilized person. I am very seldom in danger for my life. And in fact, I'm only episodically, even if it may seem different when I'm 17 in particular, episodically within my libidinal life. And even that most of the time, if I'm not drinking heavily, kind of controls itself, right? Most of my life is actually spent over here in the socialized center. And by the way, my superego is running all the time in my social everyday life. It isn't spending most of its time counterbalancing bad urges. It's actually spending most of its time creating artificial dangers and then solving them for me. Yeah. Like let, let me ask a question, Neil, Neil, to help to help complete yeah. my understanding here. Complete meaning just of the map you're offering. So, yeah. leaving the id and the instincts aside, what's the relationship between that? What most people think of as their ego, their sort of operating sense of a personality framework concept, and this yeah. super ego critic being. What's the relationship yeah, I there? Think, I think they're the same thing. I think that the super ego constructs your in, your entire personality, right? Your, your personality is an externally facing structure. Um, Duncan Trussell, the great comedian, calls it 
oh, when you meet me, you don't meet me, you meet my bodyguard, right? And so your personality is all the shiny stuff you want people to, to know about you. And, and all the stuff you want to conceal is in your personality too, right? And all of that is curated by your superego. I'm glad it's we're getting to this because when you hear just tame the inner critic, you know, you think of this like small thing, like this critic, oh, like no. there are all these other things about me that are also problematic and there's my critic, but you're actually describing something different that if you're able to transform the superego's influence and put it in this advisory capacity or in another room or tame it, to use your language, the entire space opens up. There's a wholesale yeah. change. And Annie, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because Neil writes in the book, he uses a number, which I thought was funny and curious, 85%, not, you know, 80%, reduction in anxiety after he did this work for six months. And I thought to myself, well, first of all, that's a lot. Uh, that's a huge reduction. And I'm wondering, in your own experience of anxiety in your life, have you found some numerical reduction or would you just say a whole lot or how would you describe it? I don't think I can describe it numerically. It's not like that. It's like a, I am a very high strung and anxious person. I have OCD and I have needed and gotten really beautiful help for that. But what, what I notice is that during the day, um, this the thing will rise raise its head and get any exercise today that's not good you know and it will mention this and I also have a sore hip and I'm trying to baby it but the thing thinks that I could have found other ways to get some exercise and instead of um, feeling that kind of panicky feeling about it or that 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 anxious feeling of, oh my God, I try to get exercise every day. I think, oh, it's you, you know, and there's a higher being inside me in my heart cave, as Ram Dass would put it. And there's me, there's my, my, my own beingness. And so I just, I keep thinking, oh, it's you. And then it will come up with something else in another realm with my writing came up today. And I'll, and I'll start to go, oh, you're, this is a good point. I, this is, sounds like the last thing. And then I'll think, oh, it's just you. My right, I haven't finished what I'm working on. It doesn't even know me. I and, and the writing don't quite know what it's about yet. We're working it. You know, it's, I'm working it. It's wet clay. And, and, and I will just keep breaking the trance that the inner critic sets up with me of getting me to to stare to 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 look at it it's like the vampire dance floor you know it's kind of smoky and trippy and and seductive and i move toward it and then i go oh wait it's you and i don't want to go out on the vampire dance floor i want to sit on the couch with the new new yorker and the dogs you know and so it's not numerical and it's not for me, I don't think I could calculate it, but all I can say is it's a number of times a day I, um, I, I'm able to avoid holding my neck out for it to feed on. All right. Neil, you write in the book, there are three ways of looking at the point of this work. It's a path to less anxiety. It's a path to more freedom. It's a path to enlightenment. And then you continue. I'd say it's a pretty good path to enlightenment, an excellent path to more freedom, and a pretty sure path to less anxiety. So when you started, you know, getting to it's a path to enlightenment, 
Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to ask uh, Neil about that. When I did my first round of talking to my gremlin, and I told you that I got a little more freedom and a little more freedom, I actually had, in those days, I I had, um, uh, what do you call visualizations? Like Joan of Arc. What are those called? Visions, right? I had visions in those days. I don't anymore, but I had special effects. And one of the, and I'd never had special effects, right? Except on acid, you know, sure. as a kid. But, but here I, all of a sudden, I'm talking to the gremlin. That's a special effect, right? And, and after a few months, I, I had literal velvet curtains in front of me as my superego, I felt was shifting to the right and my periphery from the center, the center opened velvet curtains and beaming shining light came in, right? And it was a lustrous angelic light with gossamer and colors and all sorts of things. And it kind of bought me uh, some currency to actually think through my convictions of atheism and go, well, if I'm getting these kind of weirdo visions and they seem at the time real to me, maybe it's worth my investigating whether there is a divine world that people have been talking about that I've always scoffed at and scorned and whatever. And it it started me, right, on a on a on a exploration of metaphysics where I had always been a physics guy. And so I started to do all sorts of different traditions. I found that almost all of the effective work that I had in coming to a satisfaction with life was destructive. And almost all of it was destroying the messaging of right, wrong, good, bad, higher, lower, better, worse that was all being curated by my superego. And so for me, on my path, besides some yoga nidra work and some meditation work and this sangha here and that dharma talk there, sure, I had all of that going too. The central work always was um, getting the superego out of the way. And I think, I, I think I'm with, you know, my, my epigraph, for the book is from uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, great Buddhist master. And he basically says that the work is destructive. It's getting the obstacles of the ego out of the way. And to me, when the ego obstacles are out of the way, when this chatter is out of the way, and I'm able to like not project myself into a near future to protect myself from or improve what's already here. When I'm there, when I'm sitting there, I don't care what form the divine takes. I don't care whether it's a Hindu form or a Buddhist form or a Jesus form or a Muslim form or a Sufi form or this form or an I don't know what it is form. I could care less. I I don't I don't know what to call it. All I know is it's cool. And it's and it doesn't prevent me from being productive in the world. It doesn't prevent me from my chores. It doesn't prevent me from caring about people. It doesn't, you know, it's a lovely thing that in these ancient traditions, determinism doesn't turn into fatalism. 
right? Determinism actually enlivens the activities of life because it increases the fascination and the appreciation of things that are suffering as well as things that are, you know, blissful. But you don't learn much from bliss. You learn a lot from suffering. You describe in Better Days that there's this natural arising of presence. You use the word presence when the superego is not active running the show. And Annie, you mentioned, used a phrase in this conversation, something like uh, a Christ self or a Christ presence. You didn't use quite that word, but you used the word Christ. And I was curious to hear more what that's like for you. And what what does that feel like? How would you describe it? Mm -hmm. Oh, boy, you know, I could write a book about that, but I think you have. (laughs) I think I described it as the truth of Christ, but it is the the truth of who we really are beyond all the identities and the layers and the persona. I love what Duncan, Duncan, Duncan Trussell says that when you meet me, you're meeting my bodyguard. It's the, the truth of the divine is the truth of my part in the divine and my, my, um, my reality, my, my anniness. And um, and that's the presence is to sort of I call it the sacrament of ploppage, where I just I st- I unclench, I stop trying, I stop trying to impress you, I stop all of it, and I just plop and I breathe, and I experience the gratitude and joy um, of of being here it's like warren zevon's famous line when he was dying and his last appearance on the david letterman show he said that dying had taught him to enjoy every sandwich you know and i think that's probably what enlightenment <laughs> how it has come to me but it's the pre- it's the presence it's a warmth it's a, a warm quiet light of truth and and radiance and it's just love energy and because i'm on the path of being a jesus lover i experience it as as the risen christ as the eyes as the the gentle forgiving compassionate sweet eyes of my older brother jesus Okay, just two final questions here. You said, uh, you know, I could write a book on that, and it made me think, I wonder what Annie's 20th book is going to be about anyway. It's about love. It's called Somehow. And it's I wrote a, I wanted to write a book for my son and grandson because I think the future is going to be pretty dicey for them. I think it's going to be pretty harsh and scary. We were in Egypt a couple of months ago and it was 113 a couple of days, you know, and that's going to be the good old days in five years. It'll, you know. And so I wanted to write a book for them about every single thing that has always worked and that will almost certainly work again for them no matter the circumstances and it's all varieties of love it's it's um it's the love of community it's the love of of the old time lifelong best friends it's the love for me with my sunday school kids and church it's the love of nature god the great outdoors you know and so it's like 12 essays on um that are all somehow about love 
And then Neil, a final question for you, which is oh, and Neil and Neil adds and the love of, of Neil, yeah. which is uh, the love of Neil and Neil's love of Annie, which is yes. where we're going to. We started and will end our conversation on that note. You have a, a section of Better Days where you write about just saying yes and how <laughs> something about this taming of the inner critic led you to this experiment of saying yes. And believe it or not, I decided to start trying this even before, this has been a recent experiment of mine in my marriage, it's been working fabulously. And I mentioned this to a couple other people, they're like, why don't you just say yes to me too? These are people I work with. And I was like, no, I'm reserving this, I'm not. But I'd just be uh, uh, curious to hear how you came to that as an experiment. Um. Yeah, I had I had two different periods with it. The first period, I'm not sure I talk about this. Maybe I do in the book. But the first period was, um, I uh, I know I was working as a newspaperman, and I know that I was worried that I was I wasn't interviewing people well, and that I needed to hone my interviewing of people and. Somebody said to me, oh, yeah, I remember this. Somebody said to me, well, what you're saying is you're worried that you disagree with the people because all you ever have to do in life if you're not disagreeing with people is ask them questions. And so one form of saying yes is to never uh, mention your own belief or mention your own judgments is just to ask people questions. And it kind of fits in with where I think I've landed later in life, which is I, I like I like being fascinated by the world. And maybe love is mostly fascination with the other, if not totally fascination with the other. And maybe my disappearing is my way of moving into the world. Later in life, I was in a corporate setting and I had a very dysfunctional group and they were um, passive aggressive to each other. They, I had a group of 14 people who reported up to me and they were a disaster zone when I walked in on them as they're kind of, they were all female. I was male. So I was kind of a plantation owner also at the same time that I was supposed to kind of herd these cats. And I couldn't, I was told I could fire them all um, when I explained the situation to my boss and I'd inherited this disaster zone. And I decided I would try to have some principles that I had learned in a previous company. And this is a company that became Wyndham Hotels. And it was the weirdest corporation I ever worked for in one respect, which was if you asked somebody to do something, they had to do it for you. And it was totally unspoken. But it was weird because you could ask somebody who worked above you on the org chart, somebody below you or somebody next to you. Hierarchy didn't matter. You had to do what you were asked to do. And if you couldn't, you would, you know, you basically, I mean, for good reason, you absolutely couldn't. Your responsibility was to find the resource that would serve that person, right? So um, I discovered that 
even though it went counter to every command and control system that I had encountered in every single other organization I had worked for, it worked perfectly. It was the smoothest, most friction-free operation that I've ever seen. And it turns out that we're fair. We're by nature fair. And the greediest people are the stingiest. And so the people who have the urge to ask everybody else to work for them in their greed also know it'll come back and they are more likely to be asked to do something for someone else. And so they balance, it balances out. It's a, it becomes a natural quid pro quo system. So I took what I had seen there and I took it to this dysfunctional group. And it's a long story, but within a year, um, I had a really high functioning, happy group. And it was simply because uh, I, I wasn't doing anything. I simply imposed a foreign principle on them. And I told them that they would get fired if they didn't obey this principle, right? And so they had to obey the principle. And even though the rest of the organization didn't, it was a heavily matrixed organization, it still worked. It, it and. And I took it to heart and I, and, and after particularly seeing it work in this dysfunctional organization, I asked myself, why haven't I done that for myself? And I started doing it for myself and I did it for six months. I just said yes to everything that came my way. Anybody who asked me anything, I said, yes, I actually, I'm sure there were things that I couldn't do and I can't remember them, but they were, there were very few. And then I had set a limit six, six months, I think. And at the end of the six months, I turned off the requirement. And for the rest of my life, I have used no at a much lower level. Than before. You know what I learned? I learned that other people really do have good ideas for me. Other people really do know what's better for me often. And that, in fact, we're all the same enough that people are pretty fair in what they ask of each other. And they're pretty compassionate and they're pretty caring. And if you do go along with things, you're not resisting as much, obviously. And that, that kind of non-resistance, um, even though it isn't particularly spiritual, be, encourages a spiritual non-resistance. And so it, it was a huge help to me over the years as I encountered the need to explore acceptance and surrender and those sorts of spiritual ideas. Long answer. Good answer. So great to be with you both. I've been speaking with Neil Allen and Annie Lamont. Neil has written the new book, Better Days, Tame Your Inner Critic, with a foreword by Annie. Thanks, friends. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after-show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.